0: This episode of Money Reimagined is sponsored by SIBO Digital. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren.
2: Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Uh, Unfortunately, we're doing a lot of this at the moment, but uh, my co-host, who I always love to be with, Sheila, is just a very busy lady at the moment, so haven't been able to, to get her on the show Uh, That's not to say we don't have a fantastic show. I hope I'm pretty certain of it today because we have the one and only Alex, otherwise known as Sandy Pentland. I'll get to him in a moment. Uh, This is Money Reimagined, as I said. You can listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts, and we would love to hear from you. So tell us what you think of this or any other episode. You can email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Make sure you use the subject line Money Reimagined. Uh, as I said, we are actually joined by Professor Alex, otherwise known as Sandy. That's who he'll be referred to from here on in. Sandy Pentland, who uh, directs the MIT Connection Science at, uh, at MIT's Media Lab. Um, Sandy has uh, been involved in data science for a very long time, one of the most noted and most off sided computational scientists in the world. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with Sandy when I was at the MIT Media Lab Digital Currency Initiative, And I just thought it would be really worth bringing him on today because Sandy uh, has, uh, uh, I think, really been at the forefront of thinking through how do human beings uh, deal with uh, the the ownership of their data and how we work through the challenges of the Web2 world uh, with that. And now as we move into an AI age where he's also spent a lot of time uh, investigating and, and you know, quite at this very moment, starting to confront some real issues, Sandy, around the governance of AI, it would just be great to have a conversation about it. So first of all, before we get into that, how are you? Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Doing fine. Glad to be here. It's a good topic. So let's do it.
2: All right, let's do it. So the news I think that's a good peg here is, of course, uh, the fracas at OpenAI, which I think, you know, the mainstream media covered as... As if it were a kind of a coup, if you like, for or an attempted coup from the board, uh, then the survival of, of of Sam Altman, and, and I think, like, as a person from the media, you know, we all love blood sports, and so uh, there, there, <laughs> there was there was some drama there that inevitably became part of the story. Like, is he in? Is he out? And what was it that had upset the board so much? And 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 how did they handle it? And 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 so forth. And you know, clearly, a big show of support for Altman amongst the employees. Uh, kind of coming to his rescue. And it looks like, you know, there would have been a mutiny and they had to come back. So it it, it all looked as if, you know, the board had overplayed their hand and uh, ultimately had, uh, had failed in whatever it was trying to do there. Uh, some of the board members who'd voted against Sam Altman were removed. Uh, new ones were brought in. Um, and there's a sort of something of a new governance model. But the key point, as far as I'm concerned, is that OpenAI was created at the very beginning with a real acknowledgement of something that we're now talking about more and more, and that is that you know this rapid-moving machine learning, and particularly this type of generative AI, has the potential to evolve out of our control into AGI, artificial general intelligence, and, and that if it did, there may be a, a, a moment in which we humans get sort of superseded by it and that we fall victim to this thing and that there's real dangers involved, right? We've been hearing a lot from these people. And therefore, OpenAI was created with this structure where it was initially uh, a nonprofit, that it would be free from the financial incentives of a typical profit for-profit company and therefore be able to engage in this research in a way without being compelled to make money and that would be a good thing. And then they realized that they'd have to like compete and so... (laughs) They spun out a for-profit company, um, uh, OpenAI Global, so they could raise money from venture capitalists and 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 start to offer incentives to their own employees. and And the original nonprofit board that that company became the major shareholder of this, and so there was still this structure of oversight. But but it had already it seemed to me had been thrown straight into this sort of like now for-profit conflict, and a misalignment was starting to happen. I don't know what it was that upset the board. We've heard various stories about articles that were written and arguments of different people. Whatever it was, that structure didn't – it seems the real risk here is that it didn't work, that if there is supposed to be some oversight, it didn't happen. And I've always thought that the biggest problem we face, not only with AI but with Web2, is the sort of centralized control of these platforms that really built upon – the human labor of everyone else, the, the, the data, the labor, the content, and that there's a misalignment between this sort of very centralized control of that and the profit motives of the companies that run that. And somehow we've got to fix out that, that, that realignment. So I don't know. I, I feel as if whatever they tried to do at OpenAI just didn't work to solve that problem. And what we're left with is the problem. So before we get into what you <laughs> see as the solution. Is my read on that right? What is what's your takeaway from the the drama? Well, you're
1: putting an awful lot into the question there. They're good questions. They're right on. But I think the first thing to talk about is is you know, what what's about the governance of AI because that seems to be the core of the battle. And then the second thing is is well, how do you avoid centralization, which is a perfectly good I mean that's a really key question. But but I think you want to take those uh Uh, as two topics, not as... Let's
2: do that. Let's start with that first one.
1: Yeah. My read on this, and, you know, like I've had Sam over to talk, and I know some of the other people, uh, is that this is a battle between people who think that AI poses an existential uh, threat to humanity. And, you know, you can sort of see that, but, you know, there's many things that pose an existential threat to humanity, and there's a standard way to get around that. Uh, or t- to deal with it, let's just say. And that is 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 that you audit things, right? You keep a continuous running audit that's publicly available. We do this with money, right? Everybody has to have those quarterly reports. We report the taxes. You know, the audit firms come in and it doesn't always work, but it works pretty well. And what it also does is scare people enough that they don't do really outrageous things. Uh, and when they do, they get caught really pretty quickly, right? So How do you audit AI? Well, you just keep a track of what it does. And and each time there's a decision, each time there's a way, you write it down, and you ask how does this compare to the sort of way we want it to do. So, in other words, is this affecting black people different than white people, women different than men? Is it saying a lot of stupid things? You know, you can keep track of that stuff. It's not even expensive. Uh, And then there ought to be the ability for people to sort of audit it. Right now, what you have to do is you have to have, like, lawsuits and discovery. And it's this, you know, you have to have to invest a lot of money and time and dig it out of their, you know, cold hands to be able to answer, is this actually working correctly or not? And you just have to make that visible and auditable. That, that's the solution that we've had for almost everything that we've done. And, and the advantage of that is is we don't know what sort of troubles AI can get into. We mm. don't know what crazy junk people are gonna do with it. And and so you can't write laws beforehand mm. to control it. What you have to do is say, okay, we know about normal bad things. We know about harms. That's why we have all those laws. That's why we, all right, okay. And we have to ask, well, is this AI causing harms? And that's an auditing question. Mm. So, so, you know, I work with the EU regulators, with the, with the U.S. people, with other sort of countries, and, you know, people are coming around to this idea. There are some things that are sort of obviously you don't want to do, but mostly um, we're in sort of new territory, and what you really ought to do is keep track of stuff and make that publicly available so that people can say, hey, wait a second, that's not fair, that's not right, mm. um, as opposed to having to, you Know, raise a hundred million dollar fund to go sue the jokers to whatever. So, so the, the open AI thing was, uh, uh, in my view, sort of a bunch of people that were sort of AI doomers and and they just didn't want to see stuff happen at all. Uh, yeah. And Sam, who's maybe a little bit too forward, right, in what they're doing, and um. You know, I'm happy to have people do things, but I want to know what they're doing, and I want to have that something that's that's guaranteed. We have the technology to do it. There's a couple of
2: concepts that I think like immediately come to mind when you say, you know, audits and transparency. I mean, they were part of the open AI story, but less so. One is open source code, right? I mean,
1: open and- source is 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 a, a, a beginning, but only a beginning, right? Because it's what data went into it. And sure. and in fact, even then you don't understand. You have to actually look at what it actually does.
2: Right. So, so I think there's like, again, you're calling for transparency, which I, I love. I think that that's, you know, that, that, that and again, I think I like this point that we, we don't have, we don't know what harms or good for that matter could come out of this. And so. It's not just transparency. It's
1: also accountability. Right. So when right. you see something bad, you can like nail the guy to the wall. Right.
2: Yeah. So, but that, again, it feels like a very different structure to, to what we currently have. Um, yeah, you know, no, no, and, and, but, but
1: it's not a hard thing to do. Okay. And so we so ought to insist that are the, are the, they do are the that.
2: Pieces that need to go into it. Like when you talk about an audit, I mean, we in the crypto space immediately think of a blockchain and, and so forth. Whether that's a reasonable that's
1: or, way to begin doing it. Yeah. Good. Well, let's,
2: let's talk about that because I feel like one of the massive challenges I would, I would have thought, if, if not for a blockchain, or, or, is that there are so many inputs the sources of that data are so varied given that they're basically hoovering up at all from the breadth of of what's on the internet.
1: Well, so that's the first thing. We have a project that's a big open source project, um, similar to sort of like Mozilla type things, called the Provenance Project, where what we've done is curate all the training data and put metadata on it about, you know, what's the quality, who owns it, what's the copyright, and so that people can now begin training these things with uh, assurance that they're doing things that are legal and not stealing somebody's pajamas, right? Mm. Uh, or, or that they're using stuff that was done by forced labor. or what? I mean, there's mm. lots of ways you can go wrong in the training. And so what we're doing is putting together uh, this huge thing. Uh, it's, it's really it's many, many pentabytes of data. It's, it's enough to really begin doing things uh, so that people can, can train things and keep track of what they trained on so mm-hmm. that you can tell,
2: right? Does it, start, does it need to go right to the source of that activity? You talked about forced labor, whatever it is. I mean, are we talking about making sure that, you know, every bit of export that's happening, in this case, data, uh, is being generated in a way that can be tracked? And therefore, how do you go back to Well, so
1: the Provenance sure? Project is an is a open source, open... It's like Wikipedia or something like that, right? It's a, a cooperative thing. And what we're doing is we're putting together all the data sources that have a, a, a verifiable provenance, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the, here, here's this thing. I can show you how I made it, and you can use it. That's right. the sort of thing. So it's not, it's not like going in there and messing right. with every byte, right? And then, and then volunteers sort of look through it, and we're building tools to guarantee that it is what it claims to be, hmm. right? So that's, that's sort of to get things off the ground. But then the other thing that you need is you need this notion of, okay, so uh, I'm less concerned with like chatbots and stuff like that. It, but what I am concerned with is when they produce outputs, right? And you know the category of person that's receiving these outputs, uh, that you can ask, is it fair? Is it saying different things to men than women? Is it saying different things to these people versus, you know, is it making medical decisions? So There's a really good one to keep track of mm-hmm. really tightly, right? Point is, is that, you know, it, with money, everybody has books. You keep track of what comes in, what goes out. You add them up, make sure they all add up. Uh, you have to produce reports about it. Uh, which can be automatic. Things like Quicken and stuff do that uh, automatically, so that you know that nothing's wrong. Mm -hmm. And and if you do that same type of thing with most AI things, you can do a lot. So for instance, some countries, like I was just in Singapore, Singapore uh, requires that you validate your AI mechanism or program before you release it. So they have a sandbox where they go in and they test it. And they test all the things that you claim that it does, and it tests it against all the sort of harms that you would imagine, uh, and you get a stamp of approval. And if it's a uh, thing that's a little bit dangerous, then you might have to do that regularly. Who, who,
2: who gets to decide what's dangerous in this case? It's essentially the regulator in each of these countries. And so, in Singapore's version of dangerous, might be something that's different. Sure, people are going
1: I... to disagree. Right. So the way that is handled in most countries, right? And I think Singapore is an example of this, is that, you know, there's a first cut that the government tries, but really it's based off of court cases and liability. Hmm. So, you know, yeah, if, 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 if what you're, if what's happening looks a lot like a standard harm, you're in right. trouble. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah, I mean, we do. It's right. We have, a, we have a, an enormous amount of body of case law that tells us what is harm and what isn't from a, from, that's from,
1: from, right. Yeah, yeah. No, is no really this is not new.
2: Around the world, right? it's
1: and, and good, all yeah. the technologies that we have, from sort of yeah. chemicals to electricity to whatever, uh, you know, have to avoid those right. harms.
2: Right. I think where it gets complicated, and this is maybe perhaps it's overthought, but I understand where it comes from: is that people see it as a free speech issue, right? Is there a, a point in which somebody's saying this is harmful speech when it when it might just be free speech, right?
1: Like. So that's bringing in a different thing. So my. My attitude is not necessarily something that uh, everybody will agree with, but I think there need to be both platforms that have verified identity. For instance, most crypto, you have to like produce verified identity. It's not attached when you do transactions. It's hmm. synonymous still. But if, if something really bad happens, hmm. the cops can go find you. It's a black a okay.
2: or, a, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. and Break the glass opportunity.
1: Break the glass sort of thing. So, And different societies define the glass a little differently. Mm -hmm. And there can also be uh, fora and other exchanges where it really is genuinely anonymous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the question is going to be for people, do you want to have any sort of protections or not? If you're on a fully anonymous thing, you know, it's caveat emptor. If you're on something where there is glass that can be broken – then you have the protection that, uh, uh, you know, something really bad happens, mm. you can, can get it fixed. Or I, I like the idea about. of
2: having, you know, a certain amount of choice to individuals as to, but yeah. so long as they've got information about the risks involved, right? I also like this idea that you would have uh, a, a voluntary proffering up of, of providence information and, and metadata so that like, okay, I know that this is safe. I don't got no idea what's in that, but at least I know this is safe. And you by by default create almost like a market incentive to. to
1: yeah, that's right. right. Positive, it's a question of what's your right. risk tolerance and right. and so forth. The only thing that, that is a little sort of problematic there is that uh, that puts a burden of uh, understanding on individuals. Mm. You have to understand what's dangerous and what's not, and mm. of course con artists are come up with all sorts of right. creative ways. Uh, which gets to another thing we were going to talk about, which is data cooperatives or, or cooperatives,
2: I, right? I'm very keen to talk about that. But before we do, I want to get into one, one other thing. And, that, so, and then maybe I can find a segue <laughs> out of this. But like when you say you know, people won't necessarily know to be able to decide, they need information to understand what it is. I, I've always liked the, the fact that SSL certificates have that very simple thing now, yeah. just just the lockbox at the top of your URL. And you know, okay, this one I can trust. That one I can't, right? And that's become like ingrained in human behavior. And we, just, we don't have to know how the the actual SSL process works. I certainly don't. Um, you probably do. Uh, but but in any case, you know, I can trust it because this is a standard and I know that these standards are being used. And so I feel like that's kind of where things go.
1: No, no that's a perfect example. And one of the things that we are advocating for and think ought to happen is uh, those certificates, ought to, they chain back, right? Where did they come from, right? And they can chain back to things like, is this a verified identity or not? Not mm-hmm. who it is, just that you can count that this is not some AI bot spamming you, right? Right. So, so it's like, you know, a real human or, mm-hmm. or something like that. And, and currently, this is like a trivial change, right? For, for, but platforms and providers don't fill in that slot at mm-hmm. the moment. And if they did, then the SSL chain would uh, tell you, oh, this thing originated from a bot and that one didn't right okay yeah Yep. that's provenance it's like pretty okay valuable. yeah yeah pretty valuable and, okay. and that ought to be something that every browser or every other thing sort of like you can set it i don't want to see bots mm. right yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you're not gonna catch all, deep, all of them
2: deep fakes right it was you know there's those sorts of ideas right? that's right so problems. you're not gonna
1: catch them all nothing's perfect right. you know money fraud we've been trying to fight for millennia still happens but you can catch 90, 95% of it, and you can, can reduce the risk of it.
2: Yeah, I think it's a great alternative way of looking at it.
0: Do you have a trusted partner for your crypto trading? SIBO Digital will introduce financially settled margin features on Bitcoin and Ether January 11th, 2024, With physically delivered contracts to follow, listed and cleared on SIBO's U.S. regulated exchange and clearinghouse, and complemented by a liquid crypto spot market for greater ease and access. We invite you to learn more about this and all applicable risk disclosures at SIBODigital.com slash Coindesk. That's CBOEDigital.com slash Coindesk.
2: How does blockchain work in this? So, you know, you talk about chaining this certificate, going back to its source. Uh, are, are we talking about a distributed ledger model? Is it a, is it a public blockchain? What, what is the structure that allows us to keep that track record with of what is really a massive, potentially massive uh, pool of data that you, you're working with?
1: Well, I mean, I can tell you what I see people doing, Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we work with a number of different countries and one of the things that they're most interested in is distributed health data, mm-hmm. right? Because health data, really valuable. Everybody understands that, but it's highly private and you don't want to concentrate it in various ways. And so you might think that that's a blockchain type of thing. It's really more of a web three type of a thing. Uh, but But unfortunately those words have been tainted in yeah. various ways. And so what I, when I talk to the people, right, you know, the, you know national leaders and stuff, I, I tell them that it's a, a distributed federated system, okay? So everybody keeps their own ledger, and then they have transactions that they record with other people. And so you can actually find out what happened. You could trace it back. Mm-hmm. But everybody's keeping a ledger of what their things is and, and what they got from other people.
2: It's like a s- and, and series of People
1: of like that, right? People buy that.
2: Permissioned ledgers, then?
1: Uh, yeah. Right. So this is for permissioned ledgers, right? Mm-hmm. You can make it for, in general, when you're talking about security, mm-hmm. uh, you're talking about highly valuable things, there's some level of permission that's involved. Absolutely.
2: Right. Okay. Certainly, I think so
1: like, for instance, with crypto exchanges again, right? You know, it may look synonymous, but underneath that, there are actual credentials.
2: Well, certainly now, because the the external yeah. laws in place that have come in to force uh, KYC yeah. requirements and so forth. And so, yeah, n- none of us can escape the the, the, the heavy hand of identity requirements and uh, whether that's a good or bad thing. Well, but it's around. not even
1: that heavy handed. I mean, come on, right? You know, so you do this once when you set up your account and then you're free.
2: Right, right. and there um, are also interesting ways to, this, to take that black break the glass model you talk about where it gets more and more abstracted and there's a lot of, lot of anonymity that you can bring to bear to sort of...
1: Yeah, create I mean, one of the things product. that, that we're, we're looking at and have sort of pushed in various places is, you know, most places have... Um, client, uh, uh, attorney privilege. Okay. So that's like, you know, you can talk to your lawyer, right. And, and it doesn't end up in court except in extreme cases. Well, you know, you can use that sort of privilege to guarantee your anonymity. So it's still there. There's still, you know, identity, but it, you know, they have to bring out the big guns to you be able more, to, to get there,
2: you know, in a way. Right. So, so let's, let's, let's move to, to data ownership and data collectors because, I think to, to bring it back to you know, AI and this, this, this sort of risk or this opportunity almost to humanity, it's a big large language model approach to things with training on massive data sets, right? It, it all seems to get abstracted away, but underneath it, there are all these human beings who, who have yeah. generated data and information wow. and are putting it out there into the ether, largely through social media. There's an interesting philosophical question whether yeah. it's copyright or not, it's philosophical. How on earth are you know, we being used for this in a way? Like, so how do we That's get right. to a world in which we're empowering people? As you know, you're, you're actually uh, a fellow for Project Liberty, which is you know founded by um, Frank McCourt, who the cat is out of the bag because Coindesk ran a, an a op-ed by him a couple of days ago, in which it was mentioned that I'm writing a book with Frank. And so full disclosure, I'm very <laughs> interested in this topic because uh, of sure, a book work on sure. Frank and you've been gracious to help out with that. But like, that's the, the, that core issue, data ownership, data control, walk us through what that world could or should look like.
1: The key thing I think is to realize that data is not just this thing that is exhaust from what we do. This is a, a core means of production. It's like money or labor. You have to treat it seriously. You have to keep track of it. We don't like just throw money out on the streets, right, unless we're crazy. We shouldn't be just throwing data out on there. And, and we've talked about a couple ways to do this, through sort of distributed ledger technology. That's great. But you have to be, it gets really complicated. I mean, even like someone like yourself who's incredibly sophisticated, would have a hard time knowing what's really the right thing to do. <laughs> my, and, my sophistication
2: and the, reaches only a certain point and then it does, doesn't get much higher. Know, but so, yeah. Like
1: everybody, right? <laughs> right you know, right. and it changes. We are
2: very limited in our, in our capacities. Yeah, yeah. Everyone and
1: does. so, you know, in the case of other means of production, like labor or, or, or capital, what we did is we started building cooperatives or associations, labor unions, cooperative banks, things like that. So we could bring our resources together to, to hire somebody whose full-time job is paying attention to it. And, and they act like a lawyer for us. They're a fiduciary and, and they help us manage it. And when you, uh, when you do that, then suddenly, you know, you, you can get sort of world-class service mm. without giving up your rights. Cause you, you know, your, your bank doesn't own your money. It merely manages your money. Right. The same thing with, you know, OK, so so, so. Uh,
2: But that very idea, by the way, that you have a right to that data is a really important starting point. That's
1: right. right? That's the key. Right. And that's is, really, it, that
2: doesn't exist at this stage, really. I don't
1: that's think. well, it's begun. Right. We've yeah.
2: yes. been trying to make yeah. this case, but it doesn't function like that. Very. It doesn't function as if we have our rights to that data, I think. Is the that's anyway. right. Well, yeah.
1: the, the thing is, is, is that, you know, things like GDPR and the California law, Uh, initialize, you know, that sort of notion of the the right Right. to your own data. People don't take it broadly enough. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, the things I say should also be included. It's not just my NFTs or or, or cash. Um, But those laws didn't operationalize it. They just said, oh, there's sort of a right to it, right? Mm. And so now the next battle is is how do you actually operationalize that so that you get the value from that? And that's where ideas like co-ops come in. We did a legal interesting thing, data rights protocol. The Consumer Reports, working with them, we just released a thing called Permission Slip, which weaponizes your rights Hmm. to own your data using legal mechanisms so that it's now just an API call not this big thing where you have to like call them up and mm-hmm. sue them and you know so so it's moving in that direction. It could move a lot faster, but you know yeah. Things so died. so
2: uh, one thing I like about the data collective idea that you've got this you know is is the sort of the, the power in numbers the the idea like you know because there's this whole conversation about whether or not you you have much bargaining power with just your data. Uh, I, I personally think that that's a little bit of a ruse because um, yeah, it, it it it's constructed around. Yes, you don't have much power with the individual data and a fully aggregated Web 2 structure of what data value is, right? But in a world in which that data was all pushed back into the hands of individuals, there's all sorts of ways that I could imagine an individual right. could use their data constructively. Nonetheless, the idea that, that you know, uh, we could... Think through different structures of organization around this. And then you mentioned to me sometime like this is actually, some people saying this is like a, a, a fourth factor of production. We live in a world and the data is so important. Walk us through that.
1: Yeah. Well, so um, we've had these sort of revolutions in being able to think about ourselves with each other and with the environment. You know, the, probably the first one was the notion of land ownership. Mm-hmm. You know, so titles and things like that. Uh, and there's a lot of infrastructure around that, including a distributed ledger, right? Is. I mean, we all have like, oh, that's what that yeah. is. And there's yeah. a blockchain. The title that says, oh, yeah, I bought this from Sam who bought it from Alice. That's a blockchain, right? It's just an old fashioned, old sort fashioned of version, version, version. Yes. you know, and then with labor, when that became commodified in the early 1800s, you know, we formed labor unions and we pushed back and we got labor laws. And none of this is perfect, but it's a lot better than it would have been. Uh, and the same thing happened with money. So it used to be that there was, like in the U.S., there's just a few big banks that sort of owned everything. There wasn't even a central uh, government bank. And uh, so uh, agricultural cooperatives started their own banks. Hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of political battling and pushing around there. But, but what it did is it, distro- it, it distributed power over money, which Across is capital,
2: like I suppose the third factor of production. That's right. Forgot, right.
1: And so now data is the same thing. And and, okay. and uh you know, it's a means of production. And I'm mm-hmm. not the only one to say so. I mean I've been saying this for quite a while, but recently uh uh Secretary General Xi of Xi China Xi yeah. got up there and said, you know, uh, data is a principal means of production, like labor and capital. And if you I, think I, about I, that, yeah. you know, here's the loudest voice in Marxism, which is the battle between capital and labor. Right. I, I kind of wish he's saying it's now a three-way else. battle.
2: Right? <laughs> I kind of wish it had come out of the mouth of somebody else, but it's a very interesting. <laughs> yeah, interesting. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no, but you
1: want to pay. If it came out of somebody else, you might say, "Oh, but coming out of his mouth." Right. In
2: the it, sense, it matters, and that, You
1: really ought to think about that.
2: The means of production conversation is a very established way to think about whether you're a Marxist or not, an interesting way to think about the structure well, sure. of the economy and the, and where power and, and how you regulate and control that. So, so the idea, so a data collective, like, so what would I do? I would like get together with some of my buddies. How, how do I form a data collective?
1: Well, the way our collectives are always formed. I mean, for real is that there's some people that are uh, uh, either very strident about it and they volunteer some time or, Somebody who thinks that this would be a good way to, you know, not get rich, but, you know, to, to make a living is helping people with this. And um, and they set up something that's like setting up a bank or setting up a, a labor union or a food cooperative. They're all the same type of structures. We have a little bit of law. There's a lot of lawyers willing to help. And we've actually put together legal templates for doing this sort of thing. And you know the simplest version is just helping people understand what to do. Here's, here's the way you set all your settings and here's the way you do it. But there's much more sophisticated versions. So for instance, uh, there's a, a company, uh, just to mention this, there's a company in, uh, in England called Privatar, which uh, if you're a member of that cooperative, nobody ever gets to see your data. What mm-hmm. they do is they they stand between you and the person who wants the, your advertising data, mm-hmm. and they pretend to be you, huh. and that's legal because they have the legal right to represent you. Okay. So so Facebook thinks it's seeing X Y and Z, but actually that's what your cooperative tells Facebook.
2: That's very interesting. They're legally obscuring things and that's right. able to make. And- bargain on your behalf kind of almost
1: uh, exactly like, do, legally do obscuring things and and the trick for them right is is that um what they do is they take the people in the cooperative that are sort of similar and they maybe say uh here's the the average person in that group that mm. the, facebook doesn't know this so in other words you don't get you know ads for things that you can't possibly use because you're you know what facebook thinks about you is is sort of right you know mm. Uh, but it's an average. It knows
2: you're going to split up with your uh, partner apparently before you do, so it does know a lot. Well, of... not anymore. It won't. Right? No,
1: you them. <laughs> yeah, so so all that sort of stuff yeah, is obscured. That's yeah. really good, right? Yeah. And. Um... So you, you know, basically, what you're doing is you're taking control of your data and and the way you interact with these things. So yeah. you just may you, not you tell some people things. Yeah,
2: right? You mentioned something uh, last time we spoke that I thought was very interesting as well about like how you would imma- you could imagine some of these data collectors forming around geographic lines that there might be even. Like, I think like, that's the
1: obvious thing to do. Yeah, so,
2: which I think I think what's well, really interesting about that is that like it, it it puts a physical dimension to this 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 very this sort of very real problem we face about the physical lives we lead as humans and this sort of all-powerful digital domain that we're operating in. And if we were able to structure our relationship with that domain through something that is inherently defined by a physical geographic space, with all of the ancillary interests that go with that, my school, my you know, whether or not my right. roads are being swept. Those issues may, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I kind of, I don't where it well, goes. There's, there's
1: two there's, there's things that, that are really critical there. One is, is that if if these co-ops were physically located, I mean, this is the way we do government. This is the mm-hmm. way we do schools. It's the way we used to do banks and, mm-hmm. and labor unions. Then they're, first of all, intrinsically distributed. Right. Okay, so you asked the the distributed question. So these are gonna be like communities, small communities. Mm. Um, And then the other thing that you mentioned, which is exactly correct, is that people who live together have a lot of shared interests, okay? And that means the way their data is used is going to have a lot of similarities, not perfect similarities, But, you know, if you use the same drugstore and you have the same doctor and you have the same corrupt uh, politician (laughs) and they don't plow your streets or whatever it is, you share all of that and you ought to be able to leverage that with the data, right? This
2: this is fascinating because you think about like where the incentives are now misaligned when somebody else has got a direct – like all-knowing, hidden control over your data. That's right. And they, and they, like I mean, the thing that I think, you know, just in the process of writing this book, we've been we've been talking about how social media, as constructed by these big platforms with sort of secretive algorithms, corrals people into these uh, environments where they often become toxic and and divided. And, you know, and and the the arguments around you know uh, the, the the struggle in Gaza at the moment, of course, is a classic example. Like it's almost impossible to find any interest, uh, uh, to find some sort of consensus, right? Like it, because immediately people are dragged into these things. But if, if, if I'm signaling to the world that what I really care about most in the world right now is my potholes or this or that, and yes, I have an opinion about Gaza, but this is the thing that really matters. And And then it's sort of like a you're opting into a different level of conversation. One would hope right. that you don't get dragged in where everybody is assumed to have a common interest in something that really is a long way away from them and, and really shouldn't possibly be dragged into this debate over this thing, right? I, not just saying everybody shouldn't have an opinion. It, it emphasizes we don't want to the weaponize commonality. that, right? And I think this yeah. is the thing. We, we weaponize division because we, can ex- we being these platforms, can, can exploit that That's right. misplaced And
1: don't let them order. do that. I mean, if you if you look at your community, you share so many things Mm. with the people you want, good medical, you want good schools, you want safety, you know, and you as a community will have opinions about that and, and, and need to act and so forth. And that shouldn't be in the hands of somebody far away somebody with different, different interests, you know,
2: like it's, it's, yeah, yeah, no, I think this is, no, no,
1: that, that, and, and that's, that's known as local governance. It's local and community empowerment and community empowerment starts with data. Mm -hmm. I mean, nowadays it used you know, the caricature of everyone goes to the town hall and talks, well, you know, things are a little more people and a little rusher and, you know, things like that. And and so now it actually really starts with, you know, knowing about your community, knowing what's Mm. happening in your community, knowing, you know, what are the attitudes and views about the community, the schooling, the policing, et cetera, and then being able to have discussions about that. And that's all those things Mm. are around ownership of data, sharing of data, uh, discussions around data. And that ought to be something that is definitely like in the hands of the community. Well, I,
2: I like the way you said town hall, because, you know, I was also thinking of town square, right? These are these concepts that we've, we've you know, through, through the centuries have worked on as safe public spaces where local uh, conversations happen without the manipulation. Of course, there's always political pressure and so forth, but we've often used the town square as an analogy for a place where people can have a discussion about what they care about. Uh, the idea that the internet would be this open free town square like environment where people could discuss things was i think part of the sort of romantic beginnings of what it was supposed that's to right. be but then these massive centralized you know data controlling systems took charge of it and it ceased to be an open town square that's right, right? and so i mean
1: way way back in the day the only people who had the internet were actually all very similar they were academics who were part of universities mm-hmm. and, and yeah, things like that. 100%. And they actually shared a great deal. They were pretty close to what mm-hmm. you'd call a community. But as that mm-hmm. grew, that you know, the commonalities fell mm-hmm. apart and, and people came in and exploited that. Mm-hmm. And I, what we need to do is go back to that sort of notion of community as a real thing and not Facebook friends or any of that sort of BS, right? So the things where we have commonality, and we saw so much of that, for instance, during COVID, where communities had opinions and wanted to do things, but were powerless because Mm. they didn't know what was happening to them. Mm. They didn't have control of their data, and they didn't have the ability to discuss it and cause things to happen. So one of the things that happens if you control data, Mm. you can control what people do with it. Right. And it's not necessarily a, a peaceful process, no, but, be, but, but, but at least you have the leverage to make your point and right. you can back it up with facts. And that's transformative when it happens. Right?
2: Now, we began talking about OpenAI and, that, and that, that issue, and you talked about how so you thought that these sort of doomsayers were coming. In. And I think it's an interesting point I'd like to dig into a little bit further here because uh, Vitalik Buterin uh, just came out, I don't know if you saw a couple of days ago, with a really very, I think, very thoughtful blog post about it was kind of an answer to Mark Andreessen and kind of an answer to the doomsayers, right? Andreessen put out his uh, techno utopian thing. And I thought I I actually, to be honest, took real offense to it because I think he was straw manning things and suggesting that those of us who are critiquing the uh, sort of Silicon Valley dominance of these platforms are all Luddites and anti-technology, which is really just not the case at all, that it is quite possible or quite reasonable Mm. to be pro-technology, pro-change, but to also point out that we need to have different structures, right? So I thought Vitalik did a very good job, actually, of trying to get away from the doomsayers and saying, no, I think we should actually lean into the embrace of, uh, you know, whether it is blockchain, Web3, AI, all of these very transformative things, and, and let them do the things they can they can do, but but at the same time, just be very constructive around um, how do we protect against human harm. Where do yeah. you where do you put yourself in that? And I think it's pretty clear that well, you, so, so, uh, you came out of the MIT Media uh, Lab, which is like a, a, a symbol of of the wonderful things technology can do. So yeah,
1: well, so look, um, first of all, let me just sort of point out that all this stuff with AI uh, is a lot older than you think. Mm. Uh, so around 1980, you began to get the first sort of enterprise systems Mm -hmm. at the time, they were AI systems, they were using machine learning, they were using algorithms and what it did is it made it cheaper to manage things centrally. And as a consequence, all the community banks disappeared. You no longer have community management of schools you no longer have clinics and communities they're all centralized so the ai that has been out there now for 40 years mm. right has centralized our society in such a way that communities are left powerless Interesting. they don't know their data because it's centralized and managed centrally it's run by algorithms i mean you think it's not it is uh, yeah. you know we're there i mean don't don't think about oh the future no it's there it's been there and a lot of the problems that we have come from that centralization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of the key things is that when you're centralized, you don't have the ability to, to see what's happening to you. You don't have a voice about it. But the other thing is that they tend to make rules that are uniform for everybody. Well, that works for the average person, but it doesn't work for anybody who's a little bit different. Okay? So a lot of the inequality and things we see, that comes from centralization. Mm-hmm. It comes in from... You know, making the rules match the mean, but not for your community or mine. So, so that's, that's thing one to sort of say. Um, and then thing two is, is you know, look, um, I think that the cure to that is you have to empower communities. You have to give them the ability to know their situation, to compare to other people in an honest way. Uh, a data driven way, so that there's evidence right mm-hmm. a- and to make their voice made in that way, and so we need to have things that are institutions that support that and that's where labor unions started that's where community banks started that's where all sorts of things started is is that communities taking their voice and mm. and weighing into to the the valley so if you go back to Andresen and so forth, right. Mm-hmm. So the big thing is that uh, at at some level, having this data lets you actually be effective.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, we have a census so that we know where the people are. Nobody questions that that's good. Of course it's good. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to allocate resources in the correct way, right? We The reason we know about global warming is data, hmm. right? I mean, you know, come on, folks, you know, Uh, uh, Now, I'm speaking as somebody who's on the board of directors for the UN's Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data. But, you know, if you care about society, you have to be able to measure it in some way, Mm -hmm. right? You know, what is the poverty rate? What is the number of people? You know, what is the level of pollution? Mm -hmm. What is the average temperature? If you can't measure those things, you can't make good decisions. You can't empower yourself. So I'm just arguing that people, communities ought to empower themselves mm-hmm. to move maybe closer to that, you know, vision that Andresen had, right, you mm-hmm. know, but, but, uh, but, but, empowered but that way a- they can keep right. a track of it and right. hold people accountable. Well, then you,
2: you could argue, and I actually think it's just a truism, like if we just find a way to distribute power of that data, give people the tools they need to anonymize where possible, we could unlock so much more, right? I mean, think about all the the, the medical data that we have that's all just tied up in all this liability concerns and HIPAA rules and so forth. And like, if we were actually put it into the hands of people to say, hey, I've got this genetic information that I think would be useful for the pursuit of a Parkinson's disease, you know, cure or whatever, we could unlock an enormous amount of information. A huge
1: amount. And and we could discover... You know, problems in neighborhoods that are poisoning the kids yeah. or whatever, right? I mean, so you know, you're data you could get,
2: optimist, right? I think that's the way to put it. Like you're a technology optimist, but you're really actually talking more than probably about how you have an optimistic view of how data could actually just change everything.
1: Again, it's like data is a primary means of production. Mm. I think communities should have money too, mm. right? That sounds like a pretty good idea. Sounds very they ratty. should have land. <laughs> that sounds good. But they should also have data because that's how things get done correctly, right? And so they have to be empowered to do that. Right? So
2: we're running a bit out of time time. So I'm just going to – just one thing that you said that just reminded me and you talked about this sort of centralization forces that have happened as algorithms have grown. And uh, Preston McAfee, who was an economist and was uh, – I think he's at, at Google, he's a leading economist there. He once said something at an event that I thought was fascinating. I heard him say that um, – Look, centralization from an engineer's perspective and a computer scientist is often seen as a good thing in the sense that it's like very, More e- efficient. Ve- yep. very efficient. You can get from A to B really quickly. But he said, if you, put, if you just left everything into the hands of those engineers, they would very efficiently build the Soviet Union. Right,
1: that's <laughs> it's right. Like, it's <laughs> that's the whole control, idea. This straight from the top, planned everything the-
2: gets done, planned, and delivered. Yep. Look at that, right? And then it's yeah. a great way to describe things because it's hardly a utopia, right? And 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 so like th- this this idea that we need to throw friction into the system to to bring forth new ideas, innovations, ide- you know, empowerment, everything else, and out of that create not so much efficiency, but just a, a sort of an ever-growing pool of different, like, creative things. It's just a different way of thinking about uh, the power of business. So,
1: so I have, I have, I have a, a bone to pick with that. I mean, okay. that, what you said is is good. Uh, the core thing is is that efficiency depends on sort of what you're measuring. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you have an aggregate uniform rule, mm. it, it is more efficient on average. Mm-hmm. It's just wrong for most people. Okay. Right. Yes. What, what, what is the thing you, about you... blockchains and distributed systems is now you can optimize all the local things hmm. and get something that's even better than the global rule. So this is for the very first time because we have these very fast computers and there's data about everything and we have things like blockchain and we have those other sorts of things. We could actually find solutions that are neighborhood centric, but globally are much more efficient and much more robust than the centralized systems. So this is, this is a realization, this is like a fundamental mathematical thing, hmm. right? I, is that, that you, like, you know, can actually do better from an efficiency point of view okay. with local, right?
2: Right, well, that's- That's,
1: that's new. That's, that is that, new, and,
2: and it sounds, it's like, you know, because it, it throws out, uh, if, if you're if you right, not even the critique. I mean, even people within, who are supporters of the technology will say, Yes, blockchains are inherently inefficient, but that's a good thing because we don't want to centralize power. You're, you're saying that, that from a, this global perspective, actually the re- end result is something that's more efficient for, for everybody. So the it's end. like
1: the, the, the health systems we're helping several countries build. Yeah. They're a distributed federated thing. They don't all have blockchains, mm-hmm. but they're distributed and they have distributed ledgers. Mm-hmm. So they're highly efficient in that sort of, like, you know, no local data mining. Level, right. But what's really interesting mm. is they, all the communities have better service. Mm. So the average is better too. Okay. Right. right? That's the key thing. Mm. And, and then you got to figure out how to make the computers do it in a sensible way. Right. Mm. But one of the things that has to be there is local control, distributed ledgers. All right, I, okay. I feel
2: like we could go and unpack even more, but unfortunately, Sandy Pentland, we are out of time. So I'm just going to thank you for what was a, a new, uh, thoroughly fascinating conversation. Um, uh, more to be had. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Um, and it was, uh, there's, there's a lot more to do here. So thank you to you all for joining us as well for another edition of Money Reimagined. Uh, we'll be back next week. You can, of course, as we always mention, listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Or wherever you get your podcast and we would love to hear from you so tell us what you think email us at podcasts at coindesk.com subject line money reimagined bye for now
0: Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.